Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 343. I am Tom Maluli, and joining me today is Tim Maluli. Hello. Hello. I think we're going to talk about how H&R Block makes money. So this was, I saw this yesterday or the day before. It was the big ad on the homepage of MarketWatch. Uh, so you know that a lot of people were seeing this ad, uh, and it was about you know, how to get a refund advance loan. I, I think uh, d- this concept just rubs me the wrong way of yeah. getting a taking a loan out for an advance on your tax refund. Yeah. There are so many other ways that you could get around having to do something like this and not having to pay money to take an advance on money that is your money. <laughs> right. It's just it it's a little maddening to think that getting a getting a tax refund should not be a surprise. Right. Well, you know, from our side of the desk, yeah. it should never be a surprise. Yeah. I, for some people I guess it is. Yeah. But if you know that you're getting a refund, you're doing something wrong during the previous calendar year. Or that's your personal choice. And like you said, that shouldn't be a surprise to someone like, right. you know, we've talked about how, you know, people view tax refunds. Some people view it as forced savings and they get the money back and they know that that's coming. They know they can expect a big refund every year. But they said in in the article that, you know, some people, usually when you submit your tax return, the IRS will pay out a refund in 21 days or about three or three to four weeks. And they said for some people, even three to four weeks is is too long for them to wait if they need this money to pay their bills. And I that made me think like if you if you need this money to to pay your bills, you need to adjust your withholding so you get more money in your paycheck on a weekly, monthly basis that will help you pay your bills. Right. That is the crux of the issue, I feel. That means you're overwithholding and you need to get this money back in a hurry. You could, as Tim just said, just adjust your withholding through the calendar year and you'll have more money each pay period in your pocket. It shouldn't be a roll of the dice or uh, like a like a game when you go to get your taxes done. Yeah. Uh, am I going to get a refund or am I going to owe money? Like it shouldn't be a flip of the coin or like you don't know what's coming. So in the 80s, waiting for your tax refund check to arrive in the mail, they didn't have direct deposit. So you had to wait for your tax refund check to show up in the mail. I mean, we would file our taxes in the spring and we would get checks in June, yeah. sometimes July. The idea now... I mean, most times when you're getting a refund, you can put your routing number and your account number right on your return, and the money will be deposited into your bank. So the whole idea of you know, getting a, an advance on your refund just doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Yeah, and they, they were saying that you can get these advanced loans in different increments, uh, some as low as like two or 300 bucks up to maybe 3500 almost $4,000. They also said that there is a lot of places charge interest rates. They charge interest on 
on these loans. Uh, and that's where the idea for me, it doesn't make sense to pay money. There's fee, there's, there's other processing fees and stuff involved with taking out these loans, paying money to get your own, get an advance on your own money. Right. It just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And the, they pointed out how places like H&R Block have zero percent interest, but there's still processing fees involved with that. So I guess as an absolute last resort, if you didn't have time to adjust your withholdings and you know, you're know you in a pinch, it's good that this is available, but you should try everything in your power before having to utilize something like this. When they started doing these tax refund advances in the 90s, a lot of firms quickly fell in trouble with this because they were charging interest and you may only be borrowing the money for 30 days. But when you did the math, the interest rates that you were being charged were an annualized rate of 30 and 35% interest, yeah. which is unconscionable. But yeah. you know, there's folks that unfortunately because of their situation, our friend Tyrone talks about the unbanked. Right. This is, you know, this is why check cashing places are still in business today because yeah. they're folks that just don't have the banking setup to be able to deposit money and then wait a few days to get it. They they rely on it. You take such a haircut when you have to go to a check cashing place. This works on the same premise right. that you're going to take a haircut to your tax return so that you can get the money now. Right. Yeah, from like a moral, ethical standard, it feels a little slimy to, to do that to someone because they most likely don't have any other direction to go in. Now, here but, it is. Yeah, 20, you know, 25 years later, these tax refund advance systems have been around. They, they kind of learned their lesson. But let's be clear about something. You're basically getting an unsecured loan from a place like a tax preparer, like an H&R Block. They don't do this for free. Yeah, definitely not. And ads on the Wall Street Journal and MarketWatch are not cheap. That's where it really grabbed my eye. It wasn't it wasn't just a you know some some article buried deep in the you had to scroll down on MarketWatch or Wall Street Journal to read about it. It was front and center when you opened MarketWatch. Front page, top banner ad. Uh, sponsored posts, so they want people to to use this kind of thing because they know that they can make money off of it. So when they advertise on Market Watch front and center, they're really appealing to folks that may not have a lot of experience with tax refunds and processing all this stuff, which kind of leads into another article that caught both of our eyes. Yeah, it was. Directed at day traders and Robinhood users and tying into the whole GameStop fiasco of a couple weeks ago. But in the Wall Street Journal, it was talking about how Robinhood traders and taxes and what they need to, to know about going into tax season right now. Um, they told the story of a 38-year-old guy who day trades for fun. He said that he enjoys it, um, but he recently got his first the first part of his 1099 for a small portion of his trades that was 34 pages long. 34. 34 pages of transactions. And I think his quote was, I can't make heads or tails of this. Yeah, he says, I have no idea what it means. 
he usually self-filed his taxes, but now he says he's going to have to hire a professional to come in and do his taxes for 2020 because of all of these day trading transactions that he did. Now, this particular gent admitted to doing uh, 200 trades per day. You know, the market's only open from 9.30 to 4. How do you <laughs> how do you jam in 200 trades a yeah, day? That's a lot. Yeah. That's that's a lot of trading. And I think, I think we've mentioned it before, but one of the things that people trading or, or flipping stocks, whether it's every day, intraday, or anything less than long-term trading, like your, your after-tax returns are what matter. Right. So you could make a hundred percent on a stock that you flipped in two days, but short-term capital gains rates, you know, you, you could end up having to send a third of that back in taxes and depending and, on your bracket. Sure. Yeah. But I, I want to stick with this 200 trades a day topic for one more moment. This particular fellow also said that he had netted a profit of $8,000, 200 trades a day. That's a lot of work. Yeah. That's like digging a ditch with a spoon every day. <laughs> right. 200 trades a day, 34 pages to start with in 1099s, uh, for all for $8,000 when you're going to have to hire a professional to come in and do your taxes now. Yeah. How much is that going to cost? It may so. be a big chunk of his profit. <laughs> right. Yeah. So just, yeah, file that under the is it worth it yeah. category. So let's move on to this tax angle with this because these folks that are buying and selling on Robinhood or other online brokerage firms, uh, they don't have the friction that we used to have with commissions. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you got to factor in how much this is going to cost to get in and then get out. Right. But the tax bill will always be present. That's never going away. Right. And, and, they were pointing out in the article about you know using losses to offset some of the gains that you have and stuff like that but you know they they also pointed out the point that if you buy and sell and then buy back the same security within 30 days that's a wash sale, wash sale. so you can't use the losses that you generated you have to wait 30 days and there are just rules i think that people don't understand when they get involved with Robinhood and these trading apps, uh, that because a lot of people, it's their first, you know, endeavor into first rodeo. It's their first account. It's yeah. their first time doing anything with stocks. Yeah, and there are just a lot of rules that people aren't aware of. So if you take a gain on a position, you can sell it and go back into the very same position. I don't know why you would do that. Right. But you are certainly entitled to do that. However, what's Tim, what Tim is alluding to is the wash sale rule. If you sell something and recognize a loss on it, you can't buy back the same position for 31 days and still be able to take that loss off your taxes. You can do it, yeah, but you won't be able to use the loss that was generated on the first go around. So I think that there is... There's been a lot of confusion in terms of trading, and and if you go back to what happened with GameStop with margin and options and short selling, it's just a lot of uh, people not understanding the rules and not understanding what they own and what they're buying and selling. But also another article that pointed out people not understanding the types of accounts that they have. 
was from ThinkAdvisor. Scary. Uh, just the headline alone, there wasn't. There was a link within the article that we're going to talk about as well. But just the headline from this ThinkAdvisor article was enough for someone uh, within the industry to kind of shake their head or you know scratch their head a little bit. It said, investors embrace taxable accounts for retirement savings. I eat chocolate <laughs> bars as a way to lose weight. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's a, to someone, you know, well-versed in finance, that's almost, that's like an oxymoron. Right. You know, investors embrace taxable accounts for retirement savings. Before we get into the article, let's just kind of Talk about the concept first, and then we'll dig into the numbers. Embracing a taxable, using taxable accounts for retirement savings. I mean, there is a little grain of truth in that. Right. Because you can do it. You can do it because if you put money into a retirement account, there are no taxes right. while you are growing this account. And you can grow it by either buy and hold. Yeah. Or by frequent trading, or yeah. whatever. I mean, you can you can skin that cat a couple of ways. Um, when the money does come out of the retirement account, it will be no matter what kind of capital gains you had. When it comes out, it will be recognized as ordinary income, just as if you earned it in a salary. There may be a little bit of an arbitrage in the sense that if you have money that you're investing, it's possible that your ordinary income when you're retired may be low enough so that your ordinary tax rates may be the same or lower than a, a capital gains rate. Right. But why take that chance? Right. Why would you do that? Yeah, I think for for me, I think it's more, you know, these, a lot of these apps at Robinhood, you can't open a retirement account. No. Why? So, because it requires paperwork. Right. So all of the accounts that you open at Robinhood are taxable. There's um, one other thing I'll add with this Robinhood business. They were defaulting people to open margin accounts. Right. You had to opt out, and I'm sure a lot of people didn't even read the terms of service mm -hmm. or understand what they were doing. And so there were a lot of people who had margin accounts, didn't even know they had them. Right. And and that goes to the point that I was saying before, people just not understanding not only the, the investments that they have, but the the accounts, the type of account that they have right. as well. Like you said, you know, there's tax-deferred growth in retirement accounts that you can buy and sell things within an IRA and not necessarily have to worry about the current the transactional the current taxes. taxes right? yeah. You'll pay it eventually, but I think it's more people just wanting to use Robinhood because they heard about it from someone or from somewhere and not knowing that it's a taxable account versus a retirement account or that there's even a difference. Yeah. Again, to sound like the old fogey in the room, uh, you know, someone wanted to open an account early in my career. It was like, okay, when can you come down to the office? Right. And we're going to fill out this book, yeah. uh, this account application, and then we're going to process it, and then we're going to deposit your check, and then we'll talk about what we want to buy. Yeah. So technically, you did have, at that point in the 80s, you had seven business days to settle a trade. So you could buy something on a Tuesday and not have to pay for it until the following week. Yeah. Uh, now, 
it's a two business day settlement after the trade date. Yeah. So trade date plus two. But now apps like Robinhood have made it so easy that you can open an account right on your phone and then hook in your bank account and transfer money. Yeah. I, hey, if you live in New Jersey, you can do Betfair New Jersey or whatever it's called. Yeah. So if you can gamble online on your phone, well, I guess this is the same thing. Right. And they said in the article there was survey results. I'm not saying that these survey results speak for the entire population of the country, but of the people that were surveyed, um, they said 66% of people had never opened an account before. This is pretty interesting because FINRA uh, co-sponsored this survey, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, But they actually, you know, sometimes when surveys get done, you find out when you read the fine print that, well, we surveyed 57 people and this is what we got. Right. Um, FINRA actually spoke with, they surveyed 1,300 people, which is actually a pretty good sample size. Right. And they did this in November. Yeah, Tim was saying two-thirds of the respondents were opening accounts for the very first time. And 20, oh. 27 of, 27% of those wanted to invest for retirement. I like to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're just naive to the fact of what type of account they're opening, not necessarily choosing a taxable account over a retirement account. So FINRA actually stated that uh, with no minimum and low minimum accounts now widely available, that's not true, uh, the barrier to entry has fallen, allowing greater access than ever before. No minimum accounts, I I mean, that's kind of how I got started in my career, mm-hmm. you know, uh, basically, if you could fog a mirror, come on board, let's go. <laughs> you, in the last few years, you could open an account online with Schwab, with TD Ameritrade, with E-Trade, with, you know, a lot of these discount brokers. But uh, having the apps now on the phone make it a little more sexy and a little more easier yeah. to do. Yeah, I mean, and the barrier to entry is not even paperwork or clicking on an actual computer now. It's just, yeah. you know, uh, downloading something on your phone, which takes 10 seconds. Right. So 57% of the folks that were surveyed by FINRA said that they opened a new account in 2020. So more than half of the people that they surveyed said, yeah, we opened a new account this year Yeah. Uh, in 2020. And that fits in line with with what we saw throughout the year of 2020. We the trend of, you know, trading and Robinhood and these apps really skyrocketed when the pandemic came. And we talked we've talked about how you know sports shut down and everything, right. so people were bored or they were sitting at home. So yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So it was interesting by uh, age how they broke it down. Um, They had a couple of different age brackets, Uh, the first one being ages 18 through 29. 41% of the people who were surveyed, 41% of them in that age bracket, 18 to 29, started with less than $500. And another 26% in that age bracket said they started with between 500 and two grand. So two-thirds of the folks that in the 18 to 29 bracket started with $2,000 or less with this. I feel like that makes sense. You know, it's young people, whether um, they're in school or just got out of school, they're just starting to set up their 
right. lives and get jobs and earn money. Now, on the flip side, people who were surveyed that were ages 60 and over, 6% of those people started with $500 or less, 8% of the folks who were age 60 and over invested somewhere between $500 and $2,000. So 14% of the people who are 60 and over started with two grand or less. This is speculation. This is right. gambling money. Those are the board people. Yeah. These are this is Vegas money. Yeah. Yeah. What what was Hopefully. interesting. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so of the people who were sixty and over, fifty-two percent of the people who were age sixty and over started with twenty five thousand dollars plus. That's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, because that's it's not necessarily chump change. No. That's a good amount that they're putting into an app like this, or yeah. you know, a, a trading account essentially. Yeah. So you hope that of that fifty-two percent putting money, that type of money in, that they have a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> From I, I hope that it's you know, hopefully twenty-five thousand dollars isn't everything. Uh, yeah, it's not twenty-five percent of their of their money. You know what I mean? Like. If if you're putting twenty five thousand dollars into a trading account, I hope you, I hope that's like five percent of your of your worth, right, or less. Yeah. One more other uh, tidbit from this article was of the existing accounts, not people who had opened new accounts. Mm -hmm. These are what they called they deem these holdover accounts. So people who already had online accounts, seventy two percent of the respondents with holdover existing accounts said that they were saving for retirement with this account. Nearly three quarters of the people with existing accounts said this is really for retirement. Yeah, that's a lot. In a taxable account. In a taxable account. Hopefully, if they're in, if they're investing in a taxable account like this for retirement, that they're just, they're not trading it or the positions that they, that they have have been held for over a year at the least, yeah. you know, more of a long, longer term buy and hold strategy as opposed to flipping in and out of stuff. So Tim, what's the message that you would, if you could speak to all of these people who answered the survey, what is the message that you would deliver? I think we talk about it a lot here, just like knowing what you own and that's, that's important, but also knowing where you own it. And if, like we said in the beginning, there is, you can save for retirement and invest for retirement in taxable accounts. You can do it. Sure. Are there more optimal ways to do it? Sure. But, you know, so hopefully to these people, if you're doing it that way, hopefully they're they're going about it wisely. When I was a stockbroker, I would cold call business owners and some of the answers that you would get when you would cold call a business owner and ask them, you know, what are you doing about retirement? And they would say, every dollar that I make goes back into my business. Yeah. Or I'm sitting in my retirement plan. I own the building or something along those lines. Having a retirement plan, 401k, a self-employed kind of a plan, it may not be appropriate or suitable for everybody. That's okay. But for most people, you really ought to consider socking some money away for retirement in the proper channel. Right. So, Tim, you raise a good point that you got to not only know what you own, but you got to know what your options are when it comes to putting the money in the right place.
That's going to wrap up episode 343. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will catch up with you in the next episode. <laughs>